Hey everybody, Dean is back, and I hope you're back too, and enjoying yourself. Um, times are still kind of rough though, I know that, I know that. I've been sitting here and, and enjoying myself for uh, the greater part of Saturday. Um, wait a minute, what day is it? Right, Saturday the 29th, in case you're wondering when I recorded this. Mm. I am sipping a tea. It's a plum tea, actually, a fruit tea. And I got a bottle of wine behind me, as usual, because why the fuck not? And I have been trying to establish contact to the friend of mine that I was talking about recently, um, the Christian woman destroying my pal's life. Um, the phone call I was anticipating did not happen, and I'm still waiting for him to call me because he's been just standing me up and pushing me outside to God knows when. And he's always, always excusing himself because of some dumb thing. Either his phone is broken or... He's got to do something with, with his wife, which I don't fucking understand why he should. And, you know, stuff like that. And he does, however, give me information every now and then about the uh, ludicrousy of when they actually wanted to sit down together to talk about their issues. He stated to me that um, everything that does happen in that discussion is only complaining and just, you know, blaming him for things that he cannot do or things that he won't do, um, blaming him for not being religious enough, and that kind of stuff. And I fear for the worst. I'm still trying to get a hold of this guy, and he promised me, and a promise of this guy doesn't really mean anything. So in, in, in case uh, there's a reason why his wife is angry at him, is because of this. He's unreliable. He was like that 20 years ago, even worse. You know, he was just... He never wanted to say something negative to you and always trying to please you, anyone who has contact him. And if somebody would say stuff like, like for example, me when I needed help at home, uh, you know, moving furniture around or just leaving the apartment and moving away, I asked him from all people I knew because he was the friendliest guy to, to, to talk to. And uh, I thought he would be reliable and be on time and to take actually, you know, notice that I need his help. And um, he disappointed me three times and never made it to the appointment, never made it to the meeting, ever, until I absolutely freaked the fuck out and said, look, I am, I am living on a very close deadline here. I need to get this shit done. I need help. If you can't do it, say it, and I'll fucking ask somebody else, but don't tell me that you're going to come and help me if you never have the time to actually do it. So I, I almost screamed at him for being, you know, completely uh, un, unnerved of his bullshit behavior. So like a little dog, like a little puppy, he would apologize. And he actually got his shit together to make it with his car to my apartment to get some stuff done. So, you know, that is just, if this is the case why his wife is pissed off, I understand. But it's not a reason, really, to force anyone, no matter what kind of behavior they have or issues they have, to just focus on on, on their religion as being, uh, you know, the, the medication for everything, the solution to everything, to key to their happiness in their relationship. That is nonsense. 
we talked about this before. I think anybody with logical brains and the common sense could actually figure out that this is not going to work. So, um, yeah, that's that. I'm still um, in the blue, more or less. I don't know exactly what's going on between those two. At least not right now. And I'm hoping that he does call me this this uh, this evening. And I'm still waiting for a message from him, but I, I fear that he's just going to stand me up again. And if he does, I'll let go of this topic and just ignore him. There's nothing I can do if he doesn't want to actually reach out for real, to look for real contact and just give me some, you know, uh, small infos and some texts here and there and always complains that he has no time. Dude, if you can't manage your life like that, then fuck off. Then, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do about that? I can't help him. That's not my problem. So I'll just leave it at that. If anything comes to rise this weekend, I will let you know. I will instantly record the uh, the conversation. Uh, not the conversation itself, but I will record what happened and give you more details. Because it's fascinating to me that anyone can, can actually live a life like that. In either denial or, you know, of, of just pure religious-based frustration. <laughs> God, I am so glad I'm single. So... To get back to the original topic I wanted to talk about is, of course, Peter Gabriel, like I promised I wanted to. Um, well, what I did in the meantime is trying to get more information if, if and how I can use music of an artist, a copyrighted material, so to speak, in a podcast to talk about it. And... The more I looked for this issue, the more answers I got. And the answer is clearly, no, you cannot. I understand that some people like to do it, to use their music in their favor and all that. I haven't gotten around to that point where I can say I can legally uh, use uh, Peter's music for the podcast. So I'll just skip that. No implementation of his music. I don't want to get flagged as, uh, you know, just abusing someone's rights or abusing copyrighted material for my own purpose which I am not using for my own purpose I'm just using it because or I want to use it and want to talk about it because it's fun there that's it basically so while I'm here um, enjoying my cup of tea I did a little bit of research in the meantime about certain details of, um, of, of well the album the first one to be honest, the first one, which I talked about before as an entry point, because I wanted to skip the Genesis part. I'm not too keen on Genesis in general. I think Peter's own words uh, a long time ago in, in an interview was, um, which, by the way, he hates being asked about Genesis. That 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 is a time in his life that was once, and it, it, it happened he learned from that kind of stuff. It was an experimental uh, phase in his life. It was a playground to discover music and vocals and what you can do with them. That's it. There is no reason for him to go back. And I totally appreciate that. I want to listen to his new stuff whenever it comes out and to generally his solo career and whatever else he's doing because that's interesting. That is who Peter Gabriel is at least a portion of the personality that he just embodies. And and everything else that happened before that, look, that's just, it's a part of history. It's a part of the history books. 
Um, it was an, in, uh, an interesting era. It was a big influence in the music industry. But his solo career, in my opinion, does a greater uh, influence or causes a greater influence to the music industry than anything he did before. That's basically because Genesis at the time was a niche rock group, a progressive niche rock band that almost no one knew. And for that, they had their own specific fan base who didn't want mainstream. They wanted something special. They discovered them. And the rest is history. You know, they, it, it took off on its own as this very theatrical rock group um, with limited fan base, I would say. Okay, I mean, over the course of many years, from today's point of view, a lot of people would disagree and say, well, come on, you can't say that because they were just phenomenal. Yeah, they were, but not as popular as Genesis has become later on through Phil Collins and uh, their, their complete mainstream route. Okay, so you got to stay fair. Of course, they were very creative in the first period. Most likely, if I would be so frank to say that the only reason why they were so so special and so crazy was because of Peter's influence in the band, not because Mike Rutherford said, oh, we have to be now massively theatrical. I don't believe that for a second, sorry. Phil Collins is not capable of actually thinking in these directions. He can't, it's not his thing, okay? He has different skills, we all know that, and he was very arrogant for showing off these skills during the 80s and early 90s, and now he's, like, really sick and just falling apart, the poor guy, you know. Somehow I can't help but think it's karma. You know, I don't wish him ill, but for fuck's sake, you know, he didn't behave really like a shining beacon of inspiration to anybody. He behaved more like a prick <laughs> during, during the heydays of his career, and Peter never behaved like that. So I have to stay just way on the outside on that stuff and just really be objective about what happened and who deserves what and why and i just i really can't be too uh, too keen on mr collins and his music because it's uh i don't know it's he, he made some good tracks he really did especially in the air tonight is a monumental song very powerful i agree totally and he deserves everything he gets for it just to be fair but many other tracks that he wrote, just to, just to set the record here, is, it's just, it's always mainstream. There is nothing interesting in his music. Nothing. It's always the same. It's always about love songs because they knew they can make money with it. Okay, fine. You can make money. Make millions and billions. I don't give a fuck. But the music is not special because of it. The music has no, no quality. It has no... Uh, no real integrity it's not challenging it's not cerebral it's just boring and 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 that's what i hate about music today because most music is boring and so was a lot of the shit that was brought out during the 80s and 90s was boring music it was sometimes new and refreshing okay well yeah i i, I get that and uh, you had tracks like natalie in in, in or in Bruglia. i don't remember exactly her last name but she was world famous because of her song Torn, where she's just this, this nice little petite brunette girl uh, standing in front of, of, of the camera for the music video and just, you know, being all emotional and all, and all that stuff. 
And that song was one of the most played songs on radio in history. Okay, and that was one example of what music could be like or was going to be like in the 90s. And that was, um, I think, a leading example of mainstream music for the, ni- for the 1990s. A very successful song. I personally never liked it, <laughs> but it's a very successful song. Um, yeah, about that stuff. We can, we can argue on, on music on so many different levels, and I can be very stubborn when it comes to music because I'm a, I'm a picky son of a bitch. I don't understand everything about music in technical terms. I could not exactly explain to you who plays the guitar right now and what kind of a riff is it, how is it played, how many, um, how many strings are used. I don't know that. I'm not a musician. I just know, for me personally, what I like in quality of music and why it is that I listen to it and what, I, what it is that I'm looking for in music, what I want to feel or what I'm expecting to feel or hoping to feel when I listen to music like that. The personal value of these tracks and what artists pull together is what I want to comment on or at least enjoy in my private life or in this podcast or to you know friends and colleagues I talk to. Which is kind of difficult because most people I talk to don't even know who Gabriel is. Everybody knows who Phil Collins is, for example. Why? Mainstream success. Gabriel? Not so many. If anything at all, if anyone remembers any song, it's always Sludgehammer. Number two will probably be Salisbury Hill from 1977, which is, um, to be fair, it's, 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 a, it's a great song, and Salisbury Hill is still one of my favorites. It's a very hopeful song that Gabriel is not necessarily known for, for hope in his music. It's always a bit more, more sad and, and, and lots of his songs, either sad or obscure and strange and weird, or uh, in some tracks even depressing, which a lot of fans disagree. And I think, look, guys, you got to be fair here. Some tracks like The Drop from uh, 2002's um, The Up album, which is one of my favorite albums, it's, um, it's the last track on that album. And then we, will, we will get there over the course of the next podcasts in the near future. This is one of the greatest songs I've ever listened to, and it's so fucking sad and so depressing at some point, but it's, it's just the typical handwriting of Gabriel when he talks about death or when he, when he sings about death. And it's interesting because he was, uh, at the time, in his early 50s when he uh, at least finished the album and, and uh, published it, and I'm not sure when the song was recorded. Um, he claims that there's so much noise in the background from the studio, from a fan noise and stuff like that, so the, the recording isn't exactly clean. And he was, he, uh, as I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was, he was hesitant about adding this track to the album for not being on the same par of quality. And I'm so glad he put it in there because it's really an astonishing piece of work. It's somehow very familiar and in, in, in style to the piano version of Here Comes the Flood, which is also, in its version, the piano version for me personally, is the, uh, the best, absolutely. And there's a live performance somewhere online, which was done specifically for the online show. Um, I forgot what it was. I have to look it up uh, later on. Um, it is worth listening to. It's a magnificent piece 
and uh, perform beautifully, uh, I can only recommend to check it out. But like I said, we're going to come back to that kind of stuff a little bit later. First, I want to dive more into the first album once again to add some information about all the music, uh, the, the musicians participating in the album um, and who produced it, if I can actually get that material back into my head. I know that the second album was produced by Robert Fripp himself. In the first album, Robert Fripp played the electric guitar and a classical guitar and a banjo. I don't really know exactly for, from what track where I have to look that up, but I don't want to. I, like I said, I'm not really too keen on the technical part of making the music. It's always good to know who's in there and, and, and why in, in total. But for me personally, it's always about the value of the music itself. And uh, ultimately, the course that Peter took uh, throughout his solo career, at least in the beginning, to find his own ground and style and just, you know, maybe... Um, a certain form of security and self-esteem, to be fair, because he was afraid that he w that the people listening to his material would maybe not give him a chance for being different from what uh, Genesis was before. They expected something just as theatrical and um, illuminating, I would say, like the um, gigantic theatrical pieces that they put together in... In, in Genesis, for example, um, you know, Last Supper, or Get Them Out by Friday, or um, The Battle of Epping Forest, I think was it called. It's also an interesting track. Uh, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, for sure, is one of the most uh, memorable theatrical tracks that they produced. My, uh, personally, what I, I like the most, and one of my favorite songs from the Genesis era, is Selling England by the Pound, which is something that is... Um, I keep singing the song when I'm at work, for example. The lyrics from the first part of the song, they always pop up into my head. They're just too beautiful to forget. This is really good tea, man. Just saying. So, the first album, like I said. Peter is doing, of course, the vocals, uh, playing the flute, and keyboards, of course. He's a keyboard nuts. He's not very good as a professional keyboard player, uh, to be fair, but he, ha he uses it, I think, well enough to establish a certain form of sound or, or a keyboard riff or just some tunes that he needs to carry out a song and give it structure and form. So that's something you can do very well. And um, the flute, I let me think about that. I think that he played the flute on Here Comes the Flood. I have to listen to that track again, which is something I can't do right now because, you know, copyright claims, so I'll, I just skipped that. Robert Fripp, close friend of Gabriel, at least I, as far as I know at the time. I'm not sure what kind of relationship they have now. Um, Robert Fripp, in case you don't know who that is... Um, there is a guitar band called King Crimson, and they're very interesting and intriguing to listen to. They craft very beautiful electric guitar and guitar sounds in general. And I think Robert Fripp is also the inventor. I could be wrong here, but I read it somewhere in a book that Robert Fripp is 
the inventor of the six string guitar and he wanted to I, he wanted one built for his own experimentation to craft music uh, slightly more controlled and more creative with more possibilities through these six strings instead of four or um, how many strings does a guitar have <laughs> yeah well you get my point like I said I'm not a technical I'm not a musician really I, I love music I really do but it, like I said this is always about something else for me the only thing I have is this microcorg standing right underneath um, the, 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 the top plate of my, my desk. It's, it's, a, it's a drawer underneath, and it, there used to be a keyboard because I used this, uh, this desk uh, for, for work and for games mostly. But I was drawing a lot on this desk, drawing on my uh, Wacom tablet for various you know, comic book designs and stuff like that which I did many years, and I feel like I'm stepping away from that kind of hobby. I'm, maybe I shouldn't, but at the moment, my interest is just somewhere else. Um, uh, Larry Fast played the synthesizer and programming. Tony Levin, who was the uh, bass player up to this day, and one of the longest friends he ever had. He's a very loyal friend and a loyal player on his team. He's also sometimes a member, or was partially a member, of King Crimson, as far as I know. But he wasn't always playing with them. Well, he plays, of course, the, uh, the bass guitar, then he plays the tuba, surprisingly, so I didn't know that he could play that. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, and he was the leader of the Barbershop Quartet because there's one song in particular which is called Excuse Me, which is a barbershop song. Mm. Which is, a, I should say, a style of barbershop. Performed very well. And I enjoyed the song very much because it's, it's a little bit of... It's, it's a little sad, to be honest, but it's beautiful. Then you have... Some dude named Alan Schwartzberg, he played the... I don't know who that is, really, but he played um, the drums. Uh, Joseph Chirovsky, if I pronounce that right, is also a keyboard player. Steve Hunter plays an, an acoustic guitar on Salisbury Hill and a lead guitar on Slow Burn and Waiting for the Big One, including another electric guitar and a rhythm guitar, whatever that is. I've never seen a rhythm guitar. Maybe I have, and I don't know what it is. Then there's a dude named Dick Wagner, which uh, he does some background singing and background vocals, and plays a guitar for Here Comes the Flood. In this version, the first version ever uh, to be public, uh, published to the world is on this album. And it's, it's more... It's, it's louder, for sure. It has a... It has an, um, uh, a very interesting guitar piece and a riff that would maybe blow you away. Personally, I, I don't know. I was never affected by this version of the song too much. It was too theatrical to, uh, to make sense of it, I would say. Or maybe this is the best way for me to describe it. It's too much for this track, for me at least.
I know that other people could just swear that this is the best song that he ever recorded, and they love this version more than the piano version. I think the, the piano, because of its silence and style of playing, is, has become... It, it just gives the song more weight and more substance to it than any version previously. Uh, for, uh, for the track down the Dolce Vida, there was the London Symphony Orchestra booked and used for the main theme and tune of the song to create this gigantic soundscape for the track. Down the Dolce Vita is beautiful. And they also used it for Here Comes the Flood, just to give you an example of how big and how uh, voluminous this uh, uh, track sounds when you play it the first time. And Michael Gibbs is responsible for the orchestra. So that's all I know about the album here. Who produced it? Well, well, I wish I knew. I couldn't find the information for that. But I think that's enough for the first one. I talked about the tracks before and what I like and what I don't like. And I think we can skip to the second one. Oh, yeah. Bob Ezrin was his name. Bob Ezrin was the producer of the first album. Well, then let's get back to the second one. The second one is where the problems started for me personally, where production took a turn of some sort. Oh yeah, before I forget, before <laughs> something important I forgot to mention. Um, the first album was sold over one million times, which is okay, you know, and, and Salisbury Hill had, I think in the UK, I think it reached number seven in the charts, number 38 only in the US, for I think 17 weeks or something. And in Germany, it was at least on number nine, which is kind of surprising that this good old classic track didn't went higher than number nine. It's, it's, it's really a great song, beautiful to listen to, and it was never really in, in the top number one, at least not to my knowledge anywhere in the world, um, which is kind of somehow a bit sad, I think. But the second album, like I said, took a, a major turn. The, there was no single on this album that made it far, or at least far enough anywhere. And it got sold poorly, um, very poorly, for I think it's one of the worst sold albums that he he put out. Um, Two hundred and ninety three thousand times, this album was sold. Now this sounds like a big number, but you know for him, in his position, it was a huge drop from the first album. So if you've sold something at least like a million times, you get at least recognized for it, and that is kind of disappointing in the end. Um, I think he, he struggled a little bit back then trying to get his, his, his stuff together, his act together. And I think that more success came afterwards with, um, with, a, with the third album. But the, the, the second one still is very creative. It's an interesting album in, with uh, fantastic songs, but the production of the album, which was produced by Robert Fripp, just doesn't really cut it. Every track sounds not really polished. It sounds like they were overdoing it. 
as if Gabriel was overdoing it, trying to find a vocal, um, a vocal style or a vocal theme that doesn't fit his personality, that he, it doesn't fit the music, and it doesn't fit his voice, at least for most of the tracks, which is sad to say that uh, the least. It's not exactly, um, it's not exactly a shining beacon of, of music. But I got to tell you, though, the tracks sound beautifully when he performed them live. When he played them live, especially in the early 80s, around, I'm not sure when that was, maybe, but I, early 80s for sure. That was before the So album came out, of course. He did a wonderful performance of the track DIY, Do It Yourself, which uh, is a short track. It only plays around 2 minutes and 30 seconds or 37 seconds. But... It's an interesting song. It sounds terrible on the album, for me personally. Almost every track sounds underdeveloped and unpolished. It's really... I don't listen to the second album all that much. But the best tracks on there are... The first one is On The Air. Um, Then the second track followed by DIY. The third one is Mother of Violence followed from A Wonderful Day in a One-Way World. Then The Infamous White Shadow, which is one of his strongest, more stronger tracks on this album anyway. Then Indigo, a song about death again, or suicide, is one of my favorites. Um, Animal Magic comes after that. Then Exposure, which is also a track being uh, recorded and played with Robert Fripp. It's a very obscure, obscure, weird track where... Everything he sings is just exposure, space is what I need. And uh, it's a fantastic track. It's the best, I think, for me personally, the best and most memorable track on the album. Um, just for ex- exp- for its experimental flair, I would say. Um, you c- if you play this track on full blast, I think you get what I mean. Then there's Flotsam and Jetsam, a more Bible verse song, which I personally never really liked. Um, uh, perspective, well, say what you will about that track. And then there's the Home Sweet Home track, also a track about some kind of death occurring into a life development of a husband and his wife and kid. And... Um, I'm not really sure wh- where he wanted to go with this album. There is there is a certain talent that you can find on the album. There is a certain vibe on the album that is trying to take its form. But I think this is more about trying to gain attention than anything else, the entire album. Um, I think even when he introduced to the label... Let me just think about that, where this... Who actually brought out the album it was yeah charisma records i remember reading when he uh, introduced the album and the demos to charisma records that um when he when he played indigo they were not really too keen on the song and they thought that it's a bit too dark they don't they didn't understand why he did it that's the point which is you know, they, they're always looking for some kind of mainstream success. Obviously, they're trying to get 
this this album sold and make money off of it. That's that's the contract, right? That's the deal. Bring us something that we can sell, while everything else is more experimental and artistic, at least in, in to some degree. I think on the air was probably together with uh, White Shadow and DIY, um, the most single worthy tracks to represent the album and trying to get advertised or gain attention but like i said every track sounds very unpolished and um the entire record just didn't really get sold all that well i think we know that right now and the album itself made um it, it made i think in the top 10 of most successful albums of 1978 it made it made number 10 but I'm I'm not sure for how long. It wasn't it wasn't a very memorable experience for the viewers, uh, for the listeners, and not for Gabriel himself, as far as I'm concerned. It's also known as Scratch the album because of the cover art. That much we know. And um, what else can I give you here on some interesting information? Peter, of course, did um, his vocals, uh, piano for sure, synthesizers on uh, White Shadow and Animal Magic. That's that much I know. Robert Fripp is almost listened throughout the entire thing, um, especially on uh, On the Air and Mother of Violence. Mother of Violence is really... That's actually one of the, more, of the better songs. I almost skipped that one. It's also... I think sang together with his wife, Jill Gabriel. But you don't hear her very well. I think, if anything at all, she's somewhere in the background. And very, uh, a very silent approach here for the, uh, for the recording. Um, Tony Levin is still here. He's, um, he's the, 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 the lead musician, I think, you could, you could say. He was like... He's like like a stone in the ocean that never disappears. He's always there. He's the mountain to rely on, I would say. It's quite uh, quite cool to, to know that he was always with him all the way. Um, there is a guy named Roy Bitten playing uh, keyboards. Larry Fast again on the synthesizers in most of the tracks. Then Jerry Marotta playing uh, the drums. Um, Sid McGuinness on the e-guitar, uh, Todd Corin, or Todd Cochran or Cochran on keyboards, Tim Capello on the saxophone on number on tracks uh, Perspective and Home Sweet Home, and George Margie plays the flute on uh, Indigo and Exposure and uh, Flotsam and Jetsam. Now. I uh, think, uh, as far as I can recall, in Canada, the album got sold only 100,000 times. And he, he, he earned platinum, or platinum, with, uh, he earned the platinum record for that, uh, just one platinum, platinum, uh, yeah, well, anyway, that's what I mean. Uh, <laughs> In France, it was sold 171,000 times, and in Japan, only 22,000 times, which doesn't surprise me, really. Um, 
Okay, that's as much as I can gather here thanks to the internet and all the interesting information that I can get from it. It is a, uh, it's more of a depressing album for me because of the lack of structure in this album. The, the problem that, that we, we hear in tracks here, not like tracks like Mother of Violence is a pretty clean recording, even though that the uh, vocal approach of Gabriel is almost just as squeaky, maybe, okay, maybe not as squeaky, but a very lighthearted, no, that's not the right word, sorry. It, it's, <laughs> it's gentle, let's put it that way. It's very soft and gentle on purpose for the track, which fits the track quite nicely. But then you have like tracks like DIY or uh, Animal Magic. Animal Magic is terrible on this album. He, he squeaks his way through the album where it's almost unpleasant to listen to. But when you listen to that stuff live, it's a completely different world. It knocks you away. On the air on this album has no power. It doesn't blow you away. It doesn't surprise you. It doesn't knock your socks off. The mixing is kind of... I don't know, it's, it's askew. It's, it doesn't feel like they knew exactly what they were doing. And that comes from a guy like me who doesn't know anything about the technical part of music. But still, it doesn't sound like it was all right. It was well done. And according to Gabriel himself, he wasn't very satisfied with the way the songs turned out in the end and how they sounded anyway. So there is no surprise there. But I cannot remember really who that was who tried to force him to sound squeaky and screamy on, on this uh, album, believing that this was what the young folks would listen to and what they would pay attention to, which is nonsense. I don't get why anyone would say such a thing. Well, anyway, um, Animal Magic, like I said, is terrible to listen to. Uh, perspective is also not very polished on this this album, at least not to me. Home Sweet Home, I think, was the more more uh, better structured songs. Indigo, for sure. White Shadow is done quite well, um, or sounds very beautiful, at least also on the album. A Wonderful Day in a One-Way World is also a song where you just, you feel that this is not right. You just feel from listening from the track, it is not, absolutely not polished, and it's not the final version that anyone wanted. Mother of Violence is actually quite perfect the way it is, but there is a better version, I think, of that one, too. Uh, the first two tracks, On the Air and DIY, sound remarkably powerful in his live performance. A completely different thing. You cannot compare it anywhere near the album, really. It's just, it's that different. The other tracks, well, Exposure is one of my favorites. I think that's the only memorable track for me on this album. It's the one thing that I come to, uh, or, or the one track I get back to on a regular basis, because it's, it, it's really unique. That's the best way I can put it. It's an interesting guitar riff-based sound. Uh, the, the entire track is based around that, around Robert Fripp's performance and Gabriel screaming around... I need more space, I need exposure. You know, space is what I need. Um, that was a song I usually uh, got up to. I always set my computer as an alarm clock and I would play that track every morning for me to get up. That is, it works, believe me it does. <laughs> well, um, that's it for me here. Uh, I think I don't want to cover more about the album here. This album is for most Gabriel fans, 
honestly a disappointment, and it was also a disappointment to uh, to Peter. Well, let's skip. I think if there's nothing else to say, I'd skip to the third album for today and then stop. Now, the third one is where things took a turn for a more uh, a cleaner production, for sure. Um, and also, he took more time to develop the album, to work on the tracks in comparison to the second one. Um, what we know from the data that I found online is that the album was sold over 570,000 times, which is significantly better than the second one. Not as good as the first one or not as successful as the first one. However, he landed the number one UK charts with his song Games Without Frontiers, in which Kate Bush is can be heard in, 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 in background vocals or um, backing vocals in general while she's singing, you know, the... the the, the verse uh, Je sens frontier which is I'm not sure if that is even correctly pronounced I'm, I used to speak French when I was a kid not anymore I don't really remember any of that stuff with the exception of a couple of words and um, the album is surprisingly political in comparison to what he did before um, especially for tracks like Biko which is the last one on the album, something I will come back to later. Um, in the album made only the 83rd place in the German charts, which is really surprising why it went so low. And in the US at least 22, which is better, but in Germany it just kind of disappeared. Although there was a specifically for the German market because he had many fans and followers and success with, uh, you know, uh, live presentations and live TV shows in Germany. So he created a German version of the third album and the fourth one. And just like the previous two albums, this album, the third one, was just called Peter Gabriel. He never really, he was never keen on placing titles for the album. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe he didn't want people to identify the album falsely with a word that might not have anything to do with the album itself. So instead he was focusing on the cover art of the album because that was more, uh, I think, a more interesting eye candy or a, a different way to affect someone if they're browsing through the record store and, you know, listening to all sorts of stuff before they decide what to buy or just buy an album because of the visual aspect of it and get surprised afterwards. Actually, I talked to people who were uh, who come from a different generation than me personally. They're moving towards uh, 60, I think, M mid 50s, early 60s. And when when they told me what their youth was like when they were walking through record stores or uh, whatever shop they could find selling audio material, and they would just browse through uh, their their uh, uh, charts and 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 some you know the bargain bins and all that kind of stuff where they would just choose 
what kind of music cassette to buy or what kind of vinyl to buy just on on the outer uh, appearance of, of of the cover art and what the music what the description on the back would suggest what kind of music that would be you know listening uh, reading through all those titles and and thinking to yourself yeah i could probably try that and it was a different way of exploring investing actual time with the product before exploring the music not like it is today with everything you do is just by the press of a button or through an audio command and you just get your stuff you know and just you can bleed your ears out to oblivion with itunes and there is no work involved and um back then i think discovering music was a much more intimate experience than just you know clicking on something and no magic <laughs> it's just there is there is truth to that and I, I understand why the revival of vinyl is so celebrated today not just because of the audio aspect of it if you have a good stereo system and you can really boost the sound off of a vinyl people swear that this is the best form to listen music to i personally have no experience in listening to vinyls per se but um i do believe there's a lot you can do with it and especially when you hold that that record in your hand it's like you hold a piece of music history in your hand instead of just looking at your ipod or phone and go like yeah okay it's a cool track i i listen to it every day but you don't have the track you don't have the physical entity maybe there's a generation that will never experience that they don't have to but i think it's kind of poor the way it's being handled today of course it's more more uh more convenient you know i get that i was heavily amazed when i figured out what mp3s were and in my young age being completely you know um overwhelmed by the music possibilities that you could just access online i was scouring the web to listen to almost anything that i could find because i frankly could not afford with my pocket money to buy proper records with the exception of listening to gabriel in the first place and sometimes some synthesizer samples like vangelis and jean-michel Jarre and stuff like that i really enjoyed that too and soundtrack collections as well well anyway uh i don't want to drift off too much let's get back to the third album the third album is the first studio album that he recorded in his own studio his own home in bath england um basically because of the experience he had with the second one he wasn't he didn't want to rush through the album he wanted to do a good job and to find the time necessary to explore the musical possibilities that he needed and was achieving or at least looking out for to achieve to place and arrange properly on the album and i think we can all agree that the third one is one of the best albums that he brought out uh, into the open and got critical acclaim that's for sure um the single games without frontiers was a surprise success he was more convinced that songs like singles like no self-control and biko would be uh more successful but the simplicity of games without frontiers the rhythm the beat on that that track the coolness of the track so to speak was a surprise hit in the uk and that really catapulted this album forward and made more so uh, more sales possible let's say and gain more attention and then of course you have 
tracks like Biko, um, the last song on the album, which is dedicated to Stephen Biko, the freedom fighter who died in 1977, um, a man who was living and breathing for the rights of his people, fighting for the rights of his people, and died while being in custody by the police um, and suffered with his people the uh, apartheid movement, which wasn't very pleasing and still is, as far as I understand, still is uh, terrible in some regions today. But uh, the story was so famous and so powerful and so moving that it got filmed, too. I think with Dancil Washington playing Stephen Biko. I've never seen that movie. I always wanted to. Maybe I'm going to try to find if I can stream it somewhere on, on, on a... I don't think it's on Netflix. I have to look maybe for it on Hulu or uh, whatever else I can find who's offering this movie. I don't buy physical movies these days very much. The only movie I want to buy is Ghostbusters, really. <laughs> it's just it's the only thing that got stuck to me. Afterlife is a beautiful film. Okay, enough said about that. No more Ghostbusters today, I'm sorry. Um, the tracks themselves, the first one is Intruder, um, where a drum beat was used from Phil Collins, who also participated in creating the uh, portion of the album, at least some musical aid for the album. I'm not sure if you can listen to him vocally. Some people say yes. I'm, I don't know which track, and I, cannot, I can't hear him on the tracks. I cannot identify Phil Collins. But um, according to the biography that I read from Spencer Bright, um, Phil Collins was sitting in front of his drums and just, you know, experimenting, just doing some drum samples and just beating the shit out of the drums while Phil, while Gabriel was somewhere in the next room uh, working on his, his lyrics, I suppose. And he, he just listened to him play and there was this, this, um, this very simple beat that probably was invented by Phil Collins by being one of the first people to actually use this kind of stuff. Most people were playing the drums back then. They always played it to, to play a, um, a stiff, same uh, rhythm, just like boom, boom, boom. That's it. And he played, Phil Collins played it differently this time, uh, not for Intruder, but at least in his own practice. And he played it like he played it a, a little bit like like this. If I can, if I can, if I can give you a sample. Right. So that's exactly the sound. Yeah, I, I did actually cut and, and copied uh, the the <laughs> intro drum loop from the song into the podcast. I hope I will not get red flagged because of this. Because I'm really anxious about this kind of stuff. You know, I do mean well for Mr. Gabriel. Always have, always will. So, but this is the drum piece, okay, that was used from Phil Collins while he was practicing. And according to uh, the biography, Gabriel jumped out of his room, heard that drum loop, and said, did you fucking hear that? And so he asked Phil Collins if he could use that for one of his songs. And he said, yeah, sure, we'll go ahead. While he went on afterwards to create anything else that came to mind, I suppose. I don't really recall which song he used it for, but I think it was a part of um, a, a different, not as, as loud and as dominant as in, in the track Intruder, but I think it was used for In the Air Tonight instead, which became, you know, like the household name of Phil Collins and a glamorous example of his talents in those years. 
Um, where was I? Where was I? I was actually, just give me a second. I have to stand up and get my whiskey. I, I skipped from wine over tea to whiskey now. Okay. Thank you very much for waiting. <laughs> I don't always want to use the pause button. Mm. It's a Talisker uh, whiskey. Not a very smoky one. It's a 10-year-old whiskey. Um, this sound, it, it, it does taste a little bit like smoke, but not, not enough. Just a tiny, tiny piece of it is in there. While everything else tastes like the typical whiskey that you know from pretty much any brand. So there is nothing spectacular about this bottle. And I ordered it with the others from Amazon back then during the Black Friday uh, marathon, <laughs> sales marathon in 2021. Now I'm still jumping here back to my information about Gabriel to get those tracks in order. I do memorize a lot of information, but I forget a lot as well. My brain isn't exactly what it used to be. Um, uh, while Peter was, was, of course, singing, he did also the piano and synthesizers like he usually does, and as well as some, some whistling. Whistling in Games Without Frontiers is actually him. Um, he's actually a pretty good uh, whistler as far as I know. He can also play the harmonica. Uh, uh, not heard of very often, but he did play it once live during the Secret, Secret World Tour back in 1994, I think. 93 or 94 it began. I think 92 was the... the the Us album 93 came, the, the live tour, and then um, a longer tour based on that in 1994, which was, I think, the decline of that tour, sort of. Not quality-wise, maybe, but you, you haven't heard anything of Gabriel since that time, and he was kind of um, hiding, I guess, for personal reasons, I think. Well, anyway... Um, surprise guest here is, of course, Kate Bush, uh, singing background vocals or some side vocals to uh, two of his songs. Then, of course, you hear Phil Collins playing the drums for Intruder, that much I know. Uh, no Self-Control is also him. Then Family Snapshot and um, Biko. So... Phil did quite a lot for him here. Uh, Larry Fostigan was at the synthesizers and doing some other special effects or sound effects. Robert Fripp on guitar. John Giblin was doing the bass. Uh, Tony Levin was doing the Chapman sticks. Uh, Dave Gregory was also on a guitar. Uh, Jerry Marado is back again for uh, other drum parts on tracks like I Don't Remember and Biko as well. I wonder what Phil Collins actually did in Biko anyway. What kind of drum that was. Well, who cares? It's a very simplistic beat. We all know that. But it was important to keep it that way to get the message across, I suppose, or get make the, uh, make the track more drone-like, meditative, almost. And you have, for the first time, David Rhodes on guitar. 
for the first track, Intruder, as well as I Don't Remember, and uh, Biko. He's also singing in the background as well. Uh, Paul Weller is doing also guitar on the sixth track, which is And Through the Wire. Uh, Steve Steve Lillywhite, whoever that is, was whistling along and w- together with Hugh Pagham. Or Patchum, his name is probably, I don't know. I'm not very good with names. Steve Lillywhite is also the pr- uh, producer of the album. And um, partially also recorded in the townhouse, townhouse Studios in London. Sorry for the dry reading of the information here. I just wanted to get this out in case anyone is listening and interested in who was actually involved uh, musically in, in this production of the the album. Well, like I said, I don't really recognize if Phil Collins was doing any background vocals. I don't think he did. Um, the label was still Charisma Records and Mercury Records. It was released on the 13th... 30th May 1980 and uh, it was like I said before much more successful thanks to the track on uh, yeah Games Without Frontiers Uh, Gabriel also stated once that during the song Games Without Frontiers when he was trying to pronounce the French part Jeux Sans Frontières it is the way he did it wasn't pronounced correctly but he didn't know at the time but he liked the way it sounded, so he just used it. He did apologize for that quite a lot uh, during the years, I, th- I think, but he's always friendly, so, you, you know, it's always the same. Intruder, however, overall, this, this album sounds much more polished. It is a huge step forward from the second album. Um, also very creative. You have The Intruder, a song about someone, of course, breaking into someone's home, the lyrics are very haunting and uh, quite interesting to imagine what someone feels and knows about his victims while uh, trespassing, which is really uh, beautifully done. Also live, very powerful. Then there's No Self-Control, which probably had um, the biggest impact on me during the So Tour. When I saw that the first time, the way he was crawling on the floor, evading you know, the those gigantic lights dropping down from from above, um, these uh, super troopers lights, I think they're called. And it's it's just really cool to see him work on stage like that, like he's trying to uh, to get away from something. No self-control talking about of, of, of a guy who cannot control himself and his urges, uh, his, his willingness to do violence and crime or even feeling pity for himself for actually doing this and not knowing how to stop, which is a beautiful track, really. Then there you have the the Start uh, track, uh, just called Start, uh, number three, which runs over a minute or so, a minute and a few seconds. It is the introduction to I Don't Remember, which is just a, um, a saxophone piece before I Don't Remember actually starts with the heavy drums. I don't know exactly what that track is for, start. I do like it. The sound is quite nice with the synthesizers uh, playing just a medley throughout um, to open for uh, I Don't Remember. And I Don't Remember was, was there is actually a, a music video being done from I Don't Remember, which is um, 
Wait a minute, what am I talking about? Was there a video? Yes, I, there was one. But I, I was trying to picture it in my head right now. It does look similar to, I think, Shock the Monkey in parts. I have to get, get back to that track, I suppose. I don't remember is... Is, um, I think that music video where, where he runs from something that he's afraid of and runs like crazy. It could be that it was shot. No, no, it was. I, I'm not sure when it was made. I really don't know. I have it vividly in my memory, but it's a cool video. And it shows or plays the live recording of, uh, of that track from the album uh, Peter Plays Live, which is also uh, a, quite a number more powerful and more convincing to the audience than the album version. Um, then, you, of course, you have the family snapshot, which has been played almost to death live. <laughs> and, um, it is a beautiful track. I've listened to it many times. It's, it's an interesting track about an assassination that originally, I think, did take place and was based off real events. I don't know exactly who the, the assassin was. I read that once in, in the biography, but those details I kind of forgot. Important thing to notice, however, is that this song is an interesting depiction of someone's thoughts before actually killing someone. And at the end of the track, you see how Gabriel is trying to illustrate and draw very, very nicely and kindly about a person's broken personality that happened sometime during his childhood, which is the closing uh, part of the song. An interesting story, really, a very intriguing story. And um, it's always worth listening to over and over again at some point in life, I think. You just, this, this kind of song is a classic that you cannot get away from. If you are into the Gabrielese universe, you will always get back to this song. I do believe that. And then you have the, uh, let's say, Notorious and Through the Wire, which uh, I think singing-wise, Peter is picking up from the second album and how to scream certain lyrics out of his lungs. Um, I think not damaging his voice box, but for sure uh, it, it took him, I think, a few takes to get this song out. It's, um, someone could say, and through the wire, is like seeing the future in hindsight, like a, a prediction of sorts, how life could be like. Because the lyrics of the song go like, um, and through the wire, I see your face, and um, that everything is kind of disturbed and, and, and changed. I hear your voice through the wire, all that kind of stuff, which is something... You know, it can be... I'm not sure what he was thinking about at the time. Maybe it was a vision of some sort for the future that we might communicate digitally only at some point in life, like we do during, uh, you know, the, the, the development of phones now, doing voice calling and video calling from phones or FaceTime and stuff like that. And um, I do like the song, basically for its middle part, when it becomes a bit more quiet and he sings this typical melancholic uh, style that he likes to do before uh, the, the track goes off again into the, to the original first beginning form of the track where, where, it's, um, where he talks about the wire. 
and uh, all these changes that we go through, I, I suppose. It's an interesting track, really. I personally, I just think it's a prediction of the future. I don't know for sure, but it sure sounds like it. Then there is, of course, Games Without Frontiers, number seven, which is the biggest highlight on the album, I guess, uh, at least success-wise and financially. So it did uh, throw off some few bucks, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, he did make a good leap forward, and it wouldn't stop there, thankfully. It just kept on getting better. Um, Then there is, I do remember reading in the biography, um, the... Before I get to that, I don't want to skip it. Not One of Us, which is extremely powerful in the live version. The album version is a little weak, to be honest. But it's 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 one of the fan favorites, I suppose. If you can listen to it live, it's beautiful. And the, 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 the basic ending of the song where only this um, monotone guitar riff is actually played, that is one of the best parts of the Birdie soundtrack of a track called Flight, where that piece of guitar is used to create a rhythmic, uh, suspenseful atmosphere, which is extremely powerful. I used that track for, uh, I did get flagged for it though, but I used that track on YouTube for um, a uh, self-made video cut, a trailer from, based on all sorts of stuff that Gabriel did did over the years, from music videos and live performances up to the point where I think it was before growing up started maybe during growing up I'm not quite sure I think afterwards and I tried to collect as much as uh, as much video material as I could I ripped my DVDs and all that stuff and I I cut just certain portions of specific videos to showcase his discography and the uh, uh, the, the success he had and the the live events just the the feel and and the experience of Gabriel, what it meant to me at least, and I tried to convey that in a track, in a short video that runs just as long as that track, Flight, does. And I think the tension is quite good, but I think it got flagged in some countries. I think you can't even see it. I might link the video in this description here in case anyone is interested. You could check it out if you want. Like I said, it's just a fan-made trailer. Um, after Not One of Us, this is the part where it's get, where it gets a little interesting and, and funny at the same time in its biography. Um, the track Lead a Normal Life is obscure because this is the kind of stuff that Gabriel is known for to fans. And at the time when he introduced the demo to the label, they actually asked him if he was mentally stable or not. You know, they were worried about him, like, what the fuck is this supposed to be? <laughs> Lead a normal life. It sounds like somebody who has lost track of his own life, maybe playing too much of video games in the arcade halls or something similar, because you hear the sounds of the arcade machines at the end of the track. And everything else is a short uh, story which probably has something to do with someone living in a psychiatric ward as a patient. That's what I think it is. And um, the, the, the lyrics are interesting, but it's... We want to see you lead a normal life. I think, it's, I think to me it sounds like somebody is, is really stuck somewhere and can't get out, where it just sings like it's, it 
it's nice here with a view of the trees. Uh, what else is he saying? Eating with a spoon, they don't give you knives. <laughs> so, you know, it does sound like he's in a ward. I like that track a lot. It's really cool. Then, of course, uh, the closing track on the album is Biko. Biko sta uh, starts first with some African chanting. And then you hear uh, the actual monotone drone-like drum sound on purpose to focus, I think, more on the lyrics instead of the music to get the message out that this is against apartheid. Uh, apartheid. And uh, it's, it's really powerful. When I heard it the first time, I was surprised, to be honest. I didn't expect a song like that on, on the album. Then I, I dug deeper into live performances of this track and what, what the record was about this, uh, the, the story and all that. I didn't know anything about uh, Stephen Biko. I didn't know that he was a freedom fighter for his people. I had no idea that he died in, in, in jail in South Africa being tortured. So, you know, without Gabriel's music, I probably wouldn't have stumbled so soon over this story. And I'm still looking forward to watch one of these uh, motion pictures based on Stephen Biko's life. Uh, I think it's a... It's a, This song is important. It is the first real political statement that Peter ever did in music. Games Without Frontiers might be... Of course, because of the lyrics connected to the fact that we shouldn't do war. It's a war. It's a. It's an anti-war song. But Biko is a much more heavy message, and and um, an anthem almost for Stephen Biko to remember what happens when people hate each other for things that are just completely absurd. You know, and this the the oppression, the racism behind it all. This is one of those songs that make it public, that make it visible and, and, and just gain attention to something that needs to be identified and eradicated, worked on at least. You know, making people aware of something is always a good idea and using music for that is sometimes even better. And I think because of this song, um, the singer Bono from U2 convinced Peter Gabriel to actually work with him together to, uh, you know, for Amnesty International and stuff like that, to become one of the members, a beacon of hope, to, to gain more attention at the oppression in other countries. And I think Peter said once in an, in, in an interview that Bono is very convincing and persuasive and it's not easy to say no to him. So he, he said, of course I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to help out for that. So it's kind of cool. Think what you will of Bono. I think he's... Um, for whatever reason, he's, he's really hated from a lot of people, and I don't really know why. <laughs> of course, he's maybe a little weird and awkward sometimes, but I do think he means well. Mm. Besides, one of my favorite songs of all time is Where the Streets Have No Name. That guitar intro is just mind-bending. I love it. It's, it's really beautiful. Well... That's where I want to close this for myself. I did listen to the third album a lot, but I got it later on. One of the first albums I had was 16 Golden Greats. First of all, just to get my mind around his music, and I think I talked about that before. And then I jumped on to, I think, the So album and Us, while jumping back to the first album, you know, in, in th two, three, and four, to get a glimpse of what he did before. And I think that the first four albums were for him also a form of practice 
to gain experience in different kinds of music, especially um, world music components and elements of that, uh, which influenced the fourth album by far. The third one, not so much. But in the fourth one, you do feel that there's a world music influence here uh, quite a lot. And we're going to talk about that maybe sometime later. Right now, I think I talk way too much. I don't want to bore you guys. Because I'm already one over one hour in. And I think that's enough. I'd like to keep it under an hour if possible, or at least not longer than one hour and 15 minutes. Um, is there anything I would like to add to the podcast? Music. Yeah, music is important, guys. I'm still sitting here, uh, by the way, waiting for Michael to maybe call, perhaps. He wanted to call tonight, or at least try, before he falls asleep. He told me that his wife, he texted me just a while ago, he, he told me that his wife is going out in a, uh, in a church group at night, doing something in church, I guess. <laughs> I don't even know what it is that they do there. It's just a gathering for their, you know, cult, I suppose, and just doing something that she finds is necessary while he stays at home and takes care of the kids. And when they fall asleep, he promised me he wanted to call. I don't believe him that he will. I think he's going to forget again, or at least fall asleep on the couch while he's sobbing into his pants or something. I don't know. Weird guy, man. Hmm. I'll be here sipping my whiskey in the meantime. Oh, no, wait. I still have to write my novel. I still have to work on that. I guess that's gonna what I'm going to do tonight after I, I've uploaded this. And I'm going to add the link to, um, to my, uh, my, my, my trailer, my fan-made Peter Gabriel trailer. Maybe you enjoy. Maybe you don't. It's not the best visual quality. Keep in mind, I had mostly DVDs to work from at the time. I haven't done any ripping from Blu-rays or stuff like that. So um, after I uploaded this track, that, that was done for me. And I still like watching it every now and then. Uh, take care of you, of, of you, you guys. Uh, stay kind to each other as always. And uh, stay healthy. Eat your vitamins, you know. Don't listen to all the darkness on the media. I think we had enough of that for a while. Let's hope that 2022 will get much better. See you next time, and bye-bye.